You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are again delighted to be able to welcome Dr. Michael Osterholm to be with us today. He's the director of the Center of Infectious Disease Research and Policy, SIDRAP, University of Minnesota. Michael, great to see you again. Thanks for making time to be with us. Thanks. Great to be with both of you. Thank you very much. Michael served as an advisor on the Biden transition team between November 2020 and January 2021. As we'll be talking in a few minutes, he joined with a number of other members of that team in issuing January 6th three viewpoints through JAMA, through the Journal of American Medicine Association, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Michael, I wanted to start today by asking you a little bit about your own personal story, if you don't mind, because you've talked about your history, you've written a memoir, you came from a very challenging childhood background, and I'd like you to just tell us a bit about how did you move from your own pathway into this career, very long career and very distinguished career in public health. How did that happen? Well, thank you, Steve, for asking. You know, I I did have a very challenging childhood. I was the oldest of six kids. My father was an alcoholic and a severely challenged individual mentally. Physical violence was his primary means of communication. As the oldest child, I often had to take uh, that head on. But, you know, at the same time, I was also given a great gift. My father was a photographer that worked for a small Iowa farm town newspaper. And the owner of the newspaper, husband and wife team, came in with, uh, you might call, renaissance credentials. And particularly the the wife, uh, who was one of the editors and a column writer there, was someone who was everything about a renaissance woman. And one of the things she did was subscribe to the New Yorker magazine. I think probably one of the very few people in rural Iowa that subscribed to it back in the 1960s. And just by chance, I read one day in one of her New Yorker magazines, a story by Burton Roger, who was famous for the Annals of Medicine series that was in the New Yorker. And these were medical whodunit stories, largely involving investigations that the CDC had done. And I really became very interested in these stories to the point of every time a new New Yorker would come and she was finished with it, she would call me and I would immediately run up to her house some five blocks away, pick it up, and I couldn't wait to get home and read it. And I knew literally when I was in junior high that I wanted to go on and become a medical detective as such. I really fell into this in a wonderful way. And I knew back then that I wanted to do it. And some, uh, you know, 50 some years later, I'm still at it. Thank you. I want to talk for a minute about your voice, the voice you've created for yourself and then your methods of communication and the personality you've created through multiple channels. We're all uh, great fans of your remarkable podcast series, the Osterholm Update COVID-19, which is you know, one of the go-to sources nationally, uh, and you've gone through hundreds of episodes, and it has a very distinct style and character to it, which is very attractive and very unusual. But I also want to turn this over to my colleague, Andrew Schwartz, who is himself an expert on communications. He teaches that topic at Tulane University. He's our chief information officer. I want to hand this particular topic area over to him since 
this is really his wheelhouse. Over to you, Andrew. Thanks, Steve. M- Mike, you know, one of the things that we've observed is that there's so much misinformation, obviously, out there. There's so much disinformation. And the current Biden administration has had a hard time really communicating to get through all of that. You've become an expert communicator in, you know, this space. There's some other folks like you, other doctors. Lena Wen comes to mind. Ashish Jha comes to mind. Peter Hotez comes to mind. Why do you think the administration hasn't enlisted one of you to really be their spokesman on this? We all turn to you on a daily basis, if not an hourly basis, for information. Well, thank you for your very kind comments. Uh, you know, I uh, I can't comment on what the administration does for communications. I, like you, do find it challenging sometimes. And I have the benefit of having frequent conversations with many of the senior officials in uh, the administration. And so I surely share that point of view about improving communications. You know, for me, I don't really have a very different voice at all during this pandemic than I've had through my 46 years in public health. Uh, You know, I come from, as I said earlier, that rural Iowa background where, you know, something doesn't play at the 10 o'clock coffee club at the S&D Cafe on Main Street in my little hometown, then it's not going to play. And so I think simplicity of message, how to take complicated things and make them so that people can understand them, react to them, support them, refute them, whatever. And so I think that that's the first thing is that message. Second of all, is always tell the truth. Just say what you know and what you don't know. And don't be afraid of saying what you don't know, but what you're trying to do to find out. You know, I've said consistently through this entire pandemic that uh, sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I feel like I know less about this virus now than I did six months ago. Well, explain to people why you say that. What is it that you are understanding and what is it you're not? And then I think the second thing is in that regard is just being willing to lay out what you think the future might look like. You know, a year ago right now, uh, I was kind of almost blacklisted among many of my colleagues because I was saying I thought the darkest days of the pandemic could still be ahead of us. And that was based on the fact that not because the case numbers were dropping precipitously from the January peak, which they were, not because, in fact, vaccines were rolling out, because they were, but I saw what the variants were doing, alpha, beta, and gamma. And if those were emerging as they were, where they were surely much more transmissible and uh, likely to evade immune protection, well, what else was coming down the pike? And so I think that one of the challenges is that we often want to interpret the data for right now, what it means right now, without looking at the big picture. I've just spent the last several days uh, kind of going head to head, you might say, with some of my colleagues who want very much to say that Omicron is now a wintertime disease and that it's here and that it will disappear this summer, maybe come back a little bit uh, next winter. Well, I don't know what Omicron is going to do for certain, but how can you say this is a wintertime disease when, in fact, the southern hemisphere is lit up with this, too? It's their summer. They are seeing as much activity in the southern hemisphere as we're seeing in the northern hemisphere. So I think it's just a matter of trying to, you know, just be as uh, honest and as straightforward as you can and just taking long glances to look at what the data are telling you. At the beginning of the pandemic, Steve and I interviewed John Barry, you know, the great author of the, the Spanish Flu Chronicle. We asked John Barry at the point, you know, what was his advice to government to dealing with this pandemic? And he said, it's easy, have them tell the truth. So it's exactly what you're saying. In this time where everybody is so exhausted 
by COVID. And I think, you know, some of your colleagues out there are saying, you know, it's going to be over soon. It's going to be over by summer, et cetera. It's going to burn out. You know, we're all getting, uh, you know, antibodies because we're getting Omicron. What is the truth and, and how should we think about, you know, Omicron and COVID going forward as, you know, winter passes and, and we get into the spring? Well, I'll give you the exact answer. I happen to know exactly what's going to happen. That is that it's going to be something where we'll see Omicron basically kind of fade out and and uh, COVID just fades into the woodwork and becomes another respiratory disease or a potential new variant is going to come around and make potentially be much worse than Omicron. And it's somewhere in between those two points. You can't model this particular pandemic more than 30 days at most. Even then, you're at risk in that last 10 days, 20 days of what it means. I mean, imagine if you had put a modeling study out the first week in November about what was going to happen with COVID and then watch what happened the next six weeks. So, you know, there are those who make you know, the media a lot who are very well known to the public who do this kind of modeling. And, uh, you know, most of it's based on pixie dust. And yet that's what people think about. Is there a good strategy that you think about when trying to communicate to an exhausted American public that just, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people I hear say, I'm, I'm done with COVID. Well, you might be done with COVID, but COVID's not done with you. How, how, how do you communicate with this kind of, you know, feeling in America right now? Well, you know, I think this is a time when you have to appeal to both people's hearts and their heads. You know, we have to give them the facts of what we know and don't know. And I think each week on my podcast, what I try to do is surely share that which is for the head, but also that which is for the heart. You know, helping people understand that, you know, in a time like this, kindness can be one of the most important virtues any of us can know, both in terms of giving and receiving. Uh, you know, understanding, uh, you know, being, being there for people, realizing how tough it is for some people. You know, I keep reminding people that we talk about numbers all the time in public health. You know, we, we got them, we, got, we can cube root them, we can make wonderful diagrams, but in the first instance, every one of these is a loved one of somebody, somebody who died, a mom or a dad or grandpa and grandma or son or a daughter. And so it's also helping to humanize it, help people realize what's going on here. So I think the key message here is to, you know, basically just tell them what you know in ways that are uh, understandable, understand what they're feeling, help them understand that kindness is by far the best elixir they can find for their broken heart, and never forgetting that these numbers are people, they're not just numbers. I just want to interject here on one point about the way that you've approached the communications. I think you've captured a lot of this in terms of simplicity, humility, compassion and kindness, and appeal to people's better sense. But you also, you're consciously very spoken and apolitical in this, in the way you put it forward. And you, in your podcast, one of the things you do that's quite unusual, I think, is first of all, have a dedication at the front end, which is to honor those, some body of people or category of people or that deserve this a spotlight and gratitude, and then to welcome a relationship with your audience, cultivate a relationship so that people are corresponding with you and convey, and you're appealing to them to do that and working that into the narrative story that you're attempting to tell 
in each one of these episodes. And that has an almost ministerial kind of quality to it. It also has a certain calming aspect to it. And I just I just want to commend you for that because it's very distinct and unusual, I think, in the quality and the approach that you're taking. It's very successful, I think. I don't know how large your audience is estimated to be, but it almost harkens back to an earlier age of radio in some yeah. way. Well, you know, Steve, quite honestly, and with some embarrassment, I acknowledge that I probably get much more out of that podcast for me than I ever give to people. You know, I think it's a way for me to share what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, and the feedback we get is remarkable. You know, we have upwards of 100,000 downloads a week minimum on the podcast, often even much higher. And we hear from so many of these people, you know, we've been through this together. And I think it really makes the point that you can combine science, you can combine policy, and you can combine life all in one venue. And, and they don't have to be at the exclusion of each other. And so I appreciate your comments very much. I sometimes, like I said, I feel almost guilty as if I get much more out of being able to do the podcast than I ever give to the audience. Yeah, thank you. You know, on Sunday, we had the Defeat the Mandates rally over at the Lincoln Memorial Sunday afternoon, midday. And I went down to watch and take it in and, and, and see who showed up and who spoke and what were the messages there. And it really, it was, it left a pretty powerful impression. You know, the anti-vaccine movements really graduated into a much more formidable force of late. And it made me wonder, like, are we thinking hard enough about what this is going to mean looking forward? I mean, Robert Malone has achieved star status thanks to Joe Rogan and the internet and other things. RFK Jr.'s still out there. He's doubled his fundraising capacity in the last year. They're building broader alliances with those opposed to mandates, finding a much more receptive audience that's out there that's really in, opposed to not just vaccines, but to masking and to mandates and social distancing. What, what is your thinking on this? I mean, this is for those of us trying to break through the noise and, and the counter narratives, this is, this is a big challenge. You know, Steve, this is without a doubt, I think the biggest challenge to public health I've known in my lifetime. And it's not just about COVID. Clearly it started about COVID, but it's about the whole issue of public health and how we do what we do. I am very worried about childhood immunizations right now. And we're watching school board and new elections of people who are against mandates of any kind being elected, being very active in that area. We're looking at local elections. We're looking at state elections. Remember, for most states, mandates around public health vaccines for young children all basically comes from local or state government. If they change those, we could see uh, really setting us back decades in terms of protecting children against routine childhood immunizations. I see the fact that so many of my colleagues, like in the health area, public health workers are burnt out. I can list for you a number of some of my most amazing colleagues who have just left the business. It was tough. You know, I mean, I even to the point of the death threats that I've received, uh, you know, I have to sit there sometimes and wonder, is this really worth it? Of course, I always come to the conclusion it is. 
But I know for many, this is just too much. And so I think in some ways, these are the darkest of ages of modern public health that we've seen. And it's not just unique to the United States, it's happening worldwide. And we're gonna pay a price over the next decade or two in increased occurrence of, of vaccine preventable diseases, of other public health measures that I think uh, have in the past proved to save lives, which will now be abandoned, if not completely just sensed as, as wrong. And so I think you've put your finger on a very, very important issue here. And uh, I don't have an answer for what we do. I just know that we have to be prepared to look at the outcome that's going to happen from this movement. Do you think that the movement continues to grow? It does. And it's really, a, a, I think, emblematic of where the country is on a whole. I mean, how many people really believe the election was stolen? How many people believe that, you know, if you listen to Malone, as you just indicated, you know, how many times this gets referred back to Nazi Germany and what public health is doing is, is you know, that type of, of activity. Um, you know, how can you believe that? You know, we've spent our whole lives trying to improve the lot of health for everyone. You know, we've tried to make it a better world. You know, I've said time and time again to the people I work with that, you know, in public health, you don't have the grateful patient phenomena where somebody can look to their physician and say, thank you for saving my child's life. But many of the things we do ultimately means that tonight, some parent will get to kiss their child goodnight, tuck him in bed, and but for what we did, they wouldn't be there. And now that's very hard to help people understand that because they look at us as somehow, you know, trying to rob them of, you know, their rights and trying to somehow hurt their family. That's a, that's a, such a counter culture change for us. It's remarkable. And do you see politicians continuing to exploit this kind of sentiment? Absolutely. And, you know, we've got examples right here in Minnesota of healthcare workers or people with health backgrounds who are coming at this from that kind of conservative Republican kind of Trump approach basically with absolute disinformation on vaccines, you know, saying here that hundreds of people have been killed in Minnesota for taking the COVID vaccine, quote unquote. I mean, you know, just information that is so far fetched beyond even disinformation. And, you know, they're believable. Their people are following them. And so who am I to speak up and stand out and say that that's not true? And so I think that that's a, a challenge I've never seen before, I've never witnessed. And I think one of the things we in public health have to do is really understand that. And I think, you know, given the cross section of what you deal with in your world, the same thing is true with foreign policy today. I mean, look what's happening with disinformation, misinformation. So in many ways, you know, we're linked arm in arm in terms of how do we deal with disinformation in a world that is in chaos. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, the way I look at it is fake news, misinformation, disinformation. It's truly a national security threat. And if we it don't is. and if we don't get smart about it and we don't have a national conversation that's ongoing, it's to our peril. And, you know, the thing that's really, I think, challenging is the very people that we're trying to uh, avoid having them experience severe illness, hospitalizations and death with COVID are the ones that are at most vocal and are the ones that are avoiding vaccines and so forth. You know, I take absolutely no comfort whatsoever 
when outspoken individuals in the community, some who have gone after me loud and hard, end up dying from COVID. That's horrible. I don't want that. I don't want to you know, have that voice silenced for that reason, but it's ironic that the very people who often are the most outspoken opponents of this also are those who are at highest risk of having a bad thing happen to them. That seems just so wrong. It, it sure is. And, and, you know, one after another, elected officials who have been outspoken like this are dying. People in the public eye are dying. And yet nothing changes. It, it's like they die and then people ignore it, which is, is the most, you know, hard thing to understand that you could possibly think of. You're right. It's just unexplainable. I want to make sure we, we have a little time to talk about the work that you did with Zeke Emanuel, Lou Borio, Celine Gounder, members of the transition advisory group to the Biden transition. Uh, you published January 6th in JAMA three viewpoints, a national strategy for the new normal of life with COVID, a national strategy for COVID-19 test surveillance and mitigation, and a national strategy for COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics. This has gotten a lot of attention. People have seen this as a very thoughtful, timely, short and punchy presentations of calling for the Biden administration from people who are affiliated with it for a reset. And so I just wanted you to quickly kind of tell us a bit more of what this means. And let's start with just what is the new normal? What does that yeah. mean? Talking about the new normal. Well, the new normal is tomorrow. That's for certain. Whether you know we can define it or not, we're going to have a new normal. We're not going to go back to a pre-2019 era. Just not going to happen. And I think the question is, what will COVID look like next year? And as we've already discussed, I don't know. You know, it will surely vary somewhere between blending into the seasonal respiratory viruses and yet still presenting potentially these new variants that could be every bit as difficult, if not devastating, as Omicron. And so we're somewhere in the middle there. So what we have to do is plan for that, though. We can't keep swinging from surge to surge. And so what we tried to do is lay out what we thought was both a public health approach that would minimize cases, but just realize also for the population as a whole, you know, they want to get back to normal. What does that mean? Well, the kids can go to school, that work is open, that they aren't uh, at risk of, uh, you know, contracting an infection today that likely could kill many of them. And so what we were trying to really envision is, and how do we make that happen? You know, what is it going to take? And we talk about the issues of what will public health have to do? What will healthcare have to do? How will we have to have new government policies? So this was really an attempt to lay out a plan that was not at all critical of the administration. You know, we've been very fortunate as part of our group to kind of sit in the second row of everything going on, close enough to see all the action, but at the same time, far enough away that we don't have to worry about in 10 minutes what's going to happen. And so we felt it was our opportunity and our obligation to help the administration by saying, okay, based on what we're seeing right now, this is what we might look at with what's going to happen. What will we want to do? How will we want to implement better testing? What will new vaccines look like? How will we deal with drug treatment? You know, one of the things, Stephen, you know so very well is the fact that if you look back into the early 1980s, a diagnosis of HIV was a death sentence. Simple put, it was a death sentence. Today, with therapeutic agents, it's largely a manageable chronic disease for many people. 
Well, how can we make that happen also? Uh, even if we can't prevent infection with our vaccines completely, what can we do to treat people? And so we were trying to really lay out an agenda that is all about moving forward in a world that we can live in and accept that it's a good world to live in. Well, I do think that you made a big, a very polite kind of nudge to the administration in terms of paying much more serious attention on testing and masking, where we've seen some dramatic decisions taken very recently, to put big focus on getting serious about data, about rebuilding our public health system and our depleted capacities, and the focus on ventilation in schools. I mean, mm -hmm. all things to me were very practical, identifying the continued gaps in what we try and do. And also, you've been very pronounced about deferred care, putting a focus on the consequences of the past two years of deferred care and depleted capacities among our health providers and putting a spotlight on that. I think all of those things were very timely and, and have shown you know, they got they got a good response thus far. I don't know how what your thinking is on further yeah. operationalizing this strategy. Well, I think we are getting a good response and we surely continue to have a number of conversations with the administration. I was asked uh, in a recent meeting, well, am I still invited to dinner at the White House? And I politely <laughs> said, well, I've never been invited to dinner at the White House in all the years I've been working with it. But I still have lots of calls and meetings with the senior White House staff. And uh, I find that to be a very positive thing. So I think our group really was uh, provided an opportunity to put forward our thoughts in a way that I do believe they're having an impact. And, and for that, I'm very thankful. Mike, do you think that the administration is taking the right approach when it comes to Omicron? Well, I think right now, uh, you know, Lewis Carroll once said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And I think the entire world has really been in that mode. Everybody thought like a year ago that the vaccines were going to end the pandemic. You know, everybody had that kind of influenza model in mind. You know, in two to three years, it'll be all behind us. Coronaviruses pose a very, very different challenge, particularly with these variants. You know, I got to tell you, the single most stunning scientific finding of my entire 46-year career in public health occurred this past fall when researchers were able to demonstrate in the state of Iowa the white-tailed deer who were roadkill, so they were being sampled routinely every week, and they were actually being cultured. It wasn't just serology or blood samples. They were actually isolating virus from them, and they found the same SARS-CoV-2 virus in these white-tailed deer that they saw in humans. But more importantly, the incidence in white-tailed deer paralleled exactly within one week of the incidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection in Iowa residents. Where did this come from? How did they get infected? What was the source? And it just points out how many different animal species around the world are now infected with SARS-CoV-2 from human contact. Well, if you wanna think about new, uh, you know, mutated viruses, new variants, you know, you can think about humans, surely they're important, but now we have all these different animal reservoirs. You know, what's coming next? What, what is it going to be that's going to be the new variant? And so I think we just have to keep our eye on the ball of that and say, you know, we got some real challenges yet ahead of us, some surprises. Don't be surprised when you're surprised. And I think that's the message we want to get across. You got to plan for those surprises now. And if you don't know exactly what they're going to be, at least be prepared when they happen to recognize them and move accordingly. Mike, you uh, very kindly 
shared on the SIDRP website our new uh, CSIS Commission white paper. First of all, thank you for doing that. In that paper, we're really focused on the international approach predominantly by the administration and making a case that we really need a a stepped-up strategy on the international Mm -hmm. side, a presidential envoy, a very strong State Department unit, a strategy and a budget that has some clearer goals and multi-year approaches, not unlike PEPFAR, and incorporating DOD more systematically and trying to test, we'll get to to China in a moment, trying to test detente mm-hmm. and putting a focus on test and treat along with vaccines. What was your what were your thoughts on what we had proposed? Well, first of all, let me say you it was an critically important piece of work. And in fact, to the point I'm working with a group right now trying to put for more, put more meat on the bone, you might say, of a domestic plan, really building out on what we talked about in the JAMA papers. And one of the things we felt really good about is we didn't have to address the international piece. You already have. You did such a great job on that. And as you know, I mean, I'm not telling you or the audience anything, you know, an infectious disease is not no political boundaries. The implications of this on an international level are huge. And so I thought you were right on the mark. I think you were bold. At the same time, you were practical, you were realistic. And I can only hope that, you know, the administration and frankly, governments around the world will read this and will come to a point of saying, this is a roadmap for the future. So uh, I, you have my strongest, strongest support and uh, gratefulness for what you did here. I think it's really important. Well, thanks so much, Michael. I really appreciate that. Today, you and Zeke published an editorial in the New York Times on China, and uh, it was keyed to the Olympics. It was keyed to Omicron. It was keyed to the whole question surrounding how is China, which is adhering vigorously to a zero COVID approach of brutal lockdowns, mass testing, and now we've got Omicron at the door really testing the viability of that. And you've got a huge population that isn't very protected, right? There's not right. a lot of immunity from infection and they've been vaccinated with vaccines that don't work very well. Tell us what your argument is. Well, thank you. You actually started to lay it out very nicely. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, you know, I think that the challenge is, is that till now you can look at China and say, as draconian as our measures may have been, they sure had a lot better outcome than we've had in the United States in terms of looking at the number of cases and deaths. But that's not gonna continue like that. Omicron presents an entirely different virus. It's like trying to control the wind. You can divert it, but you can't stop it. And so their zero COVID policy is not gonna stop Omicron inside of China. And if they're gonna to continue to lock down large areas, millions of people, they're going to bring their economy to an, a screeching halt and they're still not going to control it. Their ability to provide health care is so, so, so much less than ours here in the country. If you look at the number of ICU beds, they're just a mere speck of what we have. If you look at their ability right now to provide health care in general, it's just not there. And, and the previous success that they've had does not at all dictate what's going to happen in the future with Omicron. So what we tried to point out is, you know, they are not going to be able to sustain that. And and in the process, as you pointed out, their vaccines are not very effective against Omicron. And they have, because of their suppressing the virus, as well as they've done to date, 
they have over a billion people who are highly susceptible to this virus. And so if any place in the world that is really vulnerable to a massive outbreak of Omicron is China. And so I think that what we're going to see in the days ahead is a decision they're going to have to make. If they maintain zero COVID policy, they will shut down much of their country. Supply chains will end. That impacts us. As last time I was on with you, I talked about the drug supplies and the fact that China is a primary source for many of the 156 life-saving critical drugs that we use in this country every day. Look at all the other items that we count on as part of the global supply chain. If that shuts down, what happens to the entire world economy? What happens to these critical products that we need? And so I think this is not just a parochial discussion here about what's happening in China. This is what was happening to us. And the Chinese have to come to some understanding they can't maintain the zero COVID policy, even if it means their pride may be hurt in the public sector by acknowledging they can't control it. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Andrew, why don't you bring us to, in for the close here? Yeah, Mike, we've talked a lot about what we think is going to happen, and we all come to the conclusion we don't know what's going what, what's to happen. But can you tell us what gives you any optimism going forward? Well, you know, I do believe that uh, as, as terrible as this whole pandemic has been and as difficult as it has been to try to respond to this virus, that, you know, human ingenuity will prevail. I think we're going to see vaccine 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. Our group is leading right now an international roadmap initiative to try to develop these new vaccines. I think the drug therapy issue is real. I mean, I went through those desperate days of the 1980s with HIV AIDS. And now today I can look at that and marvel at how well we've done in reducing in many locations of the world, the morbidity mortality due to HIV and the model that serves. I think we can do a tremendous amount with COVID. I do believe that we can scale up kind of testing so that we have what we need when we need it to make uh, take certain actions that can be useful. So I do believe that science and ingenuity is on our side. It's just a matter of are we willing and able to bring ourselves together to do that? And I would like to believe we will. And so I'll keep doing that and uh, keep pushing that. And I'll keep pushing for people to be kind right now. If there was anything that we ever were short on, we just need more kindness. Amen. Michael, thank you so much for this great talk today. It's a real honor to be with you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, we feel the same way. And Steve and I always love talking to you. So thanks for your time. Thank you. All right, Michael. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.